When you need mealtime inspiration, it's worth shopping Kroger, where you'll find over 30,000 mouth-watering choices that excite your inner foodie. And no matter what tasty choice you make, you'll enjoy our everyday low prices, plus extra ways to save, like digital coupons worth over $600 each week. You can also save up to $1 off per gallon at the pump with fuel points. More savings and more inspiring flavors make shopping Kroger worth it every time. Kroger, fresh for everyone. Fuel restrictions apply. Hey, hello everybody. Welcome to Modern Day Debate. Today we are discussing abiogenesis and we got two guys who are raring and ready to have that discussion. I love both of these guys. I know them both well and I think that you guys are in for a real treat. I, it is my utmost pleasure to be here moderating, although I don't think I'm going to have to do too much. I think these guys are probably going to manage themselves. the whip, Erica. <laughs> I think we're good, RJ. I trust you. You know, it's, it's your internet I'm worried about, but I, yeah. I think we're doing pretty well right now. So the format for today, it's, it's pretty simple. It's very conducive to a good conversation. We've got five to 10 minute openers. I'll give them each a warning at eight minutes just so they know where they're at. Uh, an hour of open discussion and then question and answer from you guys. You're going to want to tag at modern day debate with your questions uh, and praise is going to be kind of collecting those as yeah. we go. Drown us in questions. <laughs> they, they want to hear them all. They want to hear them all. So it's, yeah. it's going to be super exciting. RJ is going to be starting us off. So RJ, I've got the timer ready. Uh, okay. Whenever you're ready, just head on to it. Yeah. yeah. Uh, I, I isolate that there are three big areas that we want to deal with. One is the deep time issue, which is the ballpark involved. The other are who are the players on the field and how are we determining that? And three, the outcomes that need to result of it. So what we're looking at is bum, 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 last universal common ancestor, Luca. And where does that fit in and what's going on before that? So for all we know about for benchmarks is we know blurry bacteria-like thing uh, is popping up in the fossil record by 3.8 billion years ago. Then there's a bunch of more circumstantial iffy stuff that relates to uh, 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 various uh, chemical balancing measurements and all sorts. It indicates it looks like lifey things are doing something in the period all the way back to like 4 billion years. And then we hit the lay brick wall of the uh, um, late heavy bombardment that is forming the earth. And I think that the general consensus is that everybody in the abiogenesis field is saying, all of that incoming has got to slow down before you can do whatever it is that's happening with the origin of life. So if we're talking about 4.1 billion years or so for the bombardment dropping off and then poof, 4 billion, we've got stuff going on. And then roughly a quarter of a billion years later, which is a long time, we can definitely see something going on in the bacterial front of the fossil record. What is happening in all of that? One of the uncertain things is, is that blurry bacteria shit a LUCA organism or some rival bacterial lineage that has since died out? Was LUCA before that stuff? Was it a bit after? We can't tell. There's no way. We can't do the genes and all of that. So those are the, uh, are the outer barrier that any theory of the origin of life, whether God coming down Zot or purely mechanistic or whatever, has to get those benchmarks. They have to fit that in with that time frame because that's the thing we're going on. Now, the players. All of this has happened in my lifetime to where we start out with the gas stuff 
Let's take a nice opera style atmosphere and hit it with some lightning bolts and zot, we get amino acids and gunk and okay. And is a critter crawling out? No, no one was really expecting that. But now we're, and, and we refine the atmospheres, we get them better and better, we get more gunk that way, so forth and so on. And then starting in the 70s and 80s, you started having a lot of people going, maybe we need a training wheel. Let's look at how chemicals are interacting with clay substrates, particularly montmorillite. And so a lot of that stuff is going on, what's going on to where things can form layers and chemicals can come in, which looks suspiciously like forming lipid layers and all this kind of stuff that's going on. Then after that, the next thing is, ooh, chemicals from hydrothermal vents. Ooh, isn't this neat? So is life originating like in the bottom of the ocean? Is it hydrothermal vents that are occurring up above? What the heck's going on there? But it's dumping phosphorus and, and sulfites and the oodles of stuff. Plus, let's not forget, amino acids, formaldehyde is forming in asteroids, in interstellar space, uh, all of this stuff. So you can still get a reining in of material from asteroids coming down now that the weight heavy bombardment is fitting out. Then the next player that's come in, and this is literally only like in the last five years or so where it's really starting to get into the consciousness is, wait a minute, we figured out how the moon was formed. The moon occurred from an impactor event. It's going away. The earth is spinning really fast to begin with, much faster than now. And the moon is really close to begin with. So there are super duper tides. So even though, and they're, they're going in and out, in and out, in and out, you got these wet dry cycles. And the idea that there could be prebiotic material that's occurring in a little pool that dries out and condenses and then water comes back in really quick because of these damn tides. So there's an awful lot of new work that's being done by a bunch of different researchers relating to stuff up in Iceland and various vents where they're actually looking at what's going on. Those are the, are the four main players. And the question is, are we missing some players? Are there other things that we don't know about? Because the one big giant question mark is, the life of Luca, is there more to it than that? Were there other forms of life that were running before Luca takes over and nudges them all out as the best kid on the block, which gets down to our outcome issue of where we need to deal with metabolism. I'm a metabolism first guy who thinks that you have to have these cycles that are generating resources in the environment abiotically. Otherwise, the moment the next step replicators come along, they eat themselves out of house and home if they don't have these metabolic cycles going. And there's discussions about whether the reverse of the Krebs cycle um, uh, of, um, operates in a more thermodynamic way. There's a whole bunch of things that are dealing with that. And then, those lipid layers again. So we think about what's going on that can then get blobbed in together to form the cellular systems. The replicators, of course, DNA, RNA, PNA maybe, some of the other ribonucleic acids that are different that we don't use now. How many of the pieces that are going on during this hypo hypothetical training wheel phase are things that have ended up as tiny fragments in the existing LUCA organisms uh, and how much of it has gotten shunted completely aside like Montmorillite and all of that because LUCA took over and a whole new ecosystem develops in that time frame. So to me, those are the ballpark areas that we're talking about to make sure the deep time fits to make sure that we can know all the players and we know of at least four relevant ones, but there may be more. And then the other issues are what are the things going on before we get to a LUCA-based organism after which everything's extremely boring and it's just, you know, hop, skip and a jump into the Cambrian explosion and who cares what goes on there. So that's my summation of the thing. If any time left over, 
Over to you, Cy. Okay. Uh, well, that was a great summary. Uh, I, I'm, I'm afraid to say I'm, I'm not going to be as entertaining as RJ, but I will try my best to uh, to add a little bit to what you said because uh, you you know everything you said is is uh, right on spot on with respect to you know deep time as you put it. I, I want to talk a little bit more about what happened a little later because Luca, and again, this is Luca is not the first life form. It's the yeah. first life form that then gave rise to archaea and bacteria and eventually eukaryotes. So there was probably definitely some quote life. We don't know what anything about what it looked like before Luca, which, and, and Luca was the one that, you know, uh, had the genetic code that we now know all of life with a few minor exceptions have. So that's why we can sit, that's one of the key things we have to know about Luca. But Luca was a pretty sophisticated uh, beast. And the reason we say that is because uh, archaea and bacteria with a lot of exceptions here, but they seem to have inherited various things from in common from Luca. Uh, one of the exceptions is membranes, but oh, we, don't, we don't have to talk about that right now. So what are the things that Luca had? Well, it's, it's quite, Luca was really a remarkable, uh, as I said, a remarkable animal, or I don't know, it's not the right word, a remarkable uh, creature because- was he? <laughs> it had it had an awful lot of very sophisticated and complex biochemistry going on in it. Yeah. Aside besides having a membrane of some kind, and we don't know whether it was a bacterial type or an archaea type, it had a very complex membrane. It had the genetic code. It had which that means that it probably had DNA as its as its uh, storage of genetic information. Yeah. Uh, it had proteins and it had enzymes, and that meant that it had the transcription and translation machinery. And biochemically, the translation machinery is something that is complex beyond anything that humans have ever tried to invent or came close to inventing. So Luca was already pretty advanced. And to me, as a biochemist, the real fun part uh, is how did Luca get that way? Okay, yeah. so how did we end up with DNA? How did we have R? Did we have RNA first? And there is a, a, a strong hypothesis that uh, RNA was the first genetic uh, molecule. RNA came before DNA. There's a lot of evidence for that. There is now gaining much more evidence against it that perhaps RNA by itself really is not the answer. There's some uh, theories about RNA uh, with peptides. But even then, how did we get to RNA and how did we get metabolism going? I, I have to say that, uh, and, and RJ kind of alluded to this, he said he's a metabolism first guy. And what we need to say is that in, the, in abiogenesis theory, there are two dominant opposing views. And when I say opposing, I mean Fist fights at conferences type yeah. of project. And those two views are metabolism first and replicator first. Now I used to be a replicator first person because 
I worked the DNA in my lab. So I love DNA and I just love to think that that came first. But I have to say, I have seen the light <laughs> and I've converted to metabolism first. Welcome aboard. I'll, I'll, <laughs> I'll review RJ on that. And, and there's yeah. a lot of reasons that, I, that, that that's the case. Uh, what, you know, and, and the reason this is Oops, such a freeze. difficult issue uh, is- Me or you? I'm sorry? RJ, you might be lagging a little bit there. Go, okay. go ahead, Clark. The reason this is such a difficult issue is, as it turns out, it's very hard to have metabolism and evolution and you know actual life like Luca was, unless you have replicators that can replicate the genetic information. But it's very hard to replicate or, or to replicate a replicator. Okay, it's very hard to make another copy of a replicator unless you have enzymes and proteins. And unless you have metabolism to get energy and all that. So the two things seem to need each other. And there have been theories that they both evolved at the same time and things like that. But the real take home message, I think, and, and I think RJ kind of alluded to this is we don't know how life began and we may never know. And in fact, that's not even the focus of abiogenesis research. What the, because how are we going to figure out how life began? I mean, we're we not even sure of the conditions. What we're really looking for is how could have life begun? What are the reasonable uh, chemical reactions at the early stage, the reasonable uh, biochemistry, and most importantly, what kind of evolutionary mechanisms were involved in the early period of the, uh, the, the beginning of life. One thing we have to realize is that until living cells were able to divide with great accuracy, evolution is sort of, Darwinian evolution is sort of off the table because if we don't have accurate uh, replication of cells, it's very hard to come up with a evolutionary mechanism. But there are other kinds of evolution, and that's what most people are focusing on when they're looking at the early stages, and that is, often comes under the general rubric of chemical evolution. Uh, and, and there are many theories of how chemical, chemical evolution sort of kick-started, uh, lots of things to explain. I have my own list, uh, and that includes how did chirality come about? Yeah. I kind of lost track of the time, Erica. So give me a give me a warning. Really. Now we got maybe a little bit from me. So that, uh, I, I'm, I'm. Oh, I got extra. It. Oh, great. You're okay. <laughs> super well, Sai. You got you got about four more minutes if you want. Oh, to wonderful. Okay, I'm talking faster than usual. But so one of the issues is this thing of chirality, and and I don't want to get into too much detail because it gets really boring and hard to follow. But it turns out that you know if you look at your two hands they're not superimposable, okay? You can't put your hands one on top of the other and get the thumbs to match up. You can, you can have mirror images, but they're not superimposable. That's true for a lot of chemicals. It's true for amino acids, it's true for sugars. And it turns out, and we're not totally sure we understand how this happened or why it happened, but all amino acids are left-handed, okay? There, there aren't any right-handed ones in life. And sugars are, so in other words, we have these, these uh, uh, different 
what's called enantiomers. It's just the stereoisomers of these, yeah. of the, the shape isomers of these chemicals. And they have to all be the same. And usually in nature, when we look at chemicals in nature, it's a, it's a mixture of both. And in fact, if you do a, a simple laboratory synthesis of some of these chemicals, you will get a racemic mixture, which is a combination of both. But somehow life was able to choose or did choose, we don't know how, uh, one shape or one structure, and that's all that's used. So that's one of the questions. There is some progress being made on that, uh, but they're mostly theoretical. We have the question of polymerization because uh, what really meaning, meaning time nine minutes. Yikes! Are we are we facing a, a a hurdle on this Zoom? I don't see that. Yeah, I'm, oh, I'm, I'm seeing what Arjun's talking about. Praise, are we by chance on a limited Zoom meeting? A limited Zoom account? Oops. That's Oopsie. Yeah, you have nine minutes to figure it out. Oh, while you're I, while you're on alongside. And, and, and we thought this wouldn't be exciting, huh? Because we agree on it. Yeah. <laughs> so I've got, you, I've, got, I've got you with about three more minutes. So if you- Perfect. If you, I'll say you, a little bit more. Yeah, if you, if you want to okay. feel free. So one thing is really important to know is life is chemical. Yet there's no question that life is full of chemicals and chemistry is what drives life. But we have some very unusual chemicals in life. And, and most of those are polymers. They're very long molecules that are made up of subunits. So proteins or amino acids are, are made up of amino acids. Nu uh, nucleic acids are made up of nucleotides. And all of that is done in modern life through biochemistry. We don't know how that polymerization happened in early life. Now, I will say that uh, in the laboratory, uh, it's possible to make these polymers, some of them, the nucleotides in particular, RNA in particular. Uh, we don't know if that's what happened in early life, but as I said, we're not really focused on what actually happened. We first need to determine how could it have happened, and we're not there yet either. So once we find out what could have happened, then we're a step up into finding what actually yeah, did happen. Yeah. And I think I have a number of other things, but we'll probably get to it during the discussion. So now, uh, both of us dealt with uh, Luca because all of Luca is a retro engineering. They're looking at existing organisms exactly. and figuring right. out what would a, a, a core unit have to have because everything right. from that point on has it. And so you, you have it. these That's little, th and I, I'm trying to remember how much of it is. It's like, uh, is it like five or 600 uh, genes or something like that that's involved in- It's in gotten down to around 400, the latest paper I've seen. They keep trying to get it smaller and smaller. But what's interesting is- The tiny house of origin of life problem. <laughs> yeah, it, it, what's interesting is, is that if you look at actually all the genes that are in common between bacteria and archaea and eukarya, it's only about eight. It's only the ribosomal translation yeah. genes that they all have in common, but and that's that... probably because there was so much divergence. See, there's uh, interesting things about RNA versus DNA. DNA has a delicious stability to it. Its right. molecule holds together well, but yet it's not so hold together that you can't pry it loose, but not too easily. Whereas RNA isn't nearly as stable, but it has catalytic properties that DNA doesn't. And the, when they discovered that the core 
of the ribosome that puts all of these little amino acids together is not a protein, but an RNA molecule, they're going, that's a clue about something that was going on right. in that earlier system. And the thing that always nags me, I try to think about the fact that why is it so difficult to pin down precisely where mitochondria came from in the endosymbiotic process, uh, as opposed to chloroplasts and everybody says, yeah, cyanobacteria, no problem. I think it's because it's possible that the lineage from which mitochondria emerged as an endosymbiont is now extinct. And that right. there have been lineages right. in bacteria that, are, because you've got billions of years of stuff going yeah. on before yeah. the multicellularity revolution. Everyone right. thinks, well, it's boring. It was just bacteria. No, I think an awful lot of stuff was going on during that period. Now, Luca, if you think about origin of life thing, imagine if you had to make a vat the size of Connecticut and stir it for a million years in order to make life. That's not terribly practical. So it may very well be that it's just the scale of the thing is just beyond our capacity to do more than find each individual little subcomponent piece. Yeah, I, I, I mean, that's right. And, and one thing about RNA, you talk about the difference between DNA and RNA and, and the, it's true that RNA is catalytic activity, which was, and that discovery of ribozymes instead of enzymes yeah. and ribozymes, that won the Nobel prize for uh, yeah, for a while, about Genesis, people were like kids in a candy store. Well, wow. oh, yeah. but well, it's more complicated. Frankly, frankly, that had a amazing boost for the abiogenesis research field because yeah. before that, everyone was stumped. How could you possibly get DNA from what, how, yeah. where? Well, and like and it always puzzled me, why is uracil in there? Here you got RNA that doesn't even use all the same nucleotides as DNA. It's got that bloody little uracil uh, 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 in there. And right. it turns out that's probably another clue as to stuff going on. For me, one of the big issues in that training wheel period before Luca comes along is why is there the association between the particular codon assignments and the amino acids? Oh. And, and those, <laughs> that's one where it, I, it's screaming at me this is not an arbitrary thing. The fact that it's not evenly distributed. Some of them have like five or six uh, assignments. Others are just singleton ones. What The stop codon uh, in, in the book that Jackson and I wrote, we have a whole appendix going into some of these issues because for, for us, it's one of the most intriguing little puzzles that when we know more about why that turned out the way it is, we'll know a heck of a lot more about what was going on in that training wheel period. Yeah, I, I, I mean, uh, that issue of uh, the codon assignment is under intensive research by yeah. a lot of people. And uh, in fact, uh, I'm kind of working on that myself with a couple of people that some of you guys know. Uh, and we're trying to look at the very beginning of that process, which is still very mysterious. Yeah. The other thing about the RNA oh, world, which I'll, gave I'll it such... About how, how are you on the idea that the early codons might have only had two codons instead of three? Oh, I, I think that's that's a consensus now. Yeah, I think yeah, that, it, yeah. That's generally it's like, ooh, agreed to. Fewer amino acids. Therefore, early life might have had fewer proteins available right. because lesser amino acids. But it is... It's one of those things that it's saying, this is interesting, that the amino acids that are easiest to synthesize in prebiotic experiments are the ones most commonly used in proteins. Yeah, and, and the, the other thing about, you know, if you have two, if you have a two nucleotide codon, you can still get 16 amino acids. So you're yeah, only missing yeah. four. And the four that you're missing are not what you could, what you would consider the 
really basic workhorse amino they're acids. The, they're the air conditioning and vinyl roof. Exactly. That's of, the, of they're the finishing touch. So, so there's, I think it's pretty much a consensus that, it, you know, assuming that the genetic code evolves, uh, it's probably going to be starting with two and then you have the wobble base yeah. and you have three. And then the wild card in the mix is how much of the origin of life only leads to, is there a reason why it's DNA, RNA with the codon assignments that we have, or are there alternative biologies that are perfectly viable that aren't used now because they've all gone extinct hundreds of millions of years ago in the same way trilobites and ammonites have, have gone extinct. And that puts a new wrinkle about the idea of whether or not there were alternative versions of those components that we can't know about because none of them led to a, a form that still exists and they can't be preserved in the fossil record. Well, that, that, that's right. But that goes back to my, to my main comment that we're trying to see what was possible, what could have happened. Yeah. And I think that a lot of people in the field think that if we can reconstruct a, a pathway or a mechanism that would lead to something that would work, it probably did happen. 137, and, they'll either give us more time or will it be extinct or we'll have to do a speed bump and rejoin. Praise, but and, I, now, Praise and I are racing against the clock trying to get a hold of James right now. You guys continue. Okay. All right. Whee! This is probably this is what exciting. happens in the origin of life, right? I mean, something went extinct, but then another thing came right along. Yeah, so. and that's the other <laughs> thing that always wonders, are some of these prebiotic circumstances ones that will occur so inevitably that they may have occurred even during the later stages of the heavy bombardment that got vaporized by the next incoming and started over again, like the Essa sketch getting a shaken each time. That's a great, I wanted to bring up that question. We'll probably have to do it in the, in the next iteration, yeah. but that is an amazingly important question is how easy was it for life to yeah. start? One answer is nothing to it. You, every time you have, you know, the right conditions, you'll get life. The other answer is it's impossible. It was a miracle. And by the way, the miracle idea is not just something that, you know, religious people think. I've also heard that from scientists who are not yeah, it, it's, it's who are saying it was it's, a one-time event. It'll never it happen again. It has been again. the intractable problem that has been facing all of that. And it's one of the reasons why so many anti-evolutionists love going to that origins or bust thing, because they figure if they can derail that starting point, they don't care about anything that happened afterwards. RJ mentioned a couple of things yeah. uh, that we might want to touch. And one of them is something I'm really interested in. In fact, I'm actually working on, I have worked on, and that's the, what, the way he put it was um, error catastrophe. And that's a very important issue in biology in general. It's important in virology and lots of things, medicine. But in the origin of life, it's really important because one thing, and I kind of hinted at this before, one thing that's really important to try to understand is fidelity or accuracy. In other words, when DNA replicates or RNA, if RNA was the first replicator, when they replicate, it's not enough to be okay. It has to be extremely accurate. In yeah. fact, it's been estimated that the minimum accuracy for a really small RNA ribozyme is 98%. And in fact, in modern life, uh, when DNA replicates, or if you if you compare the all the proteins from one cell to its parent cell before it divided, 
the accuracy of those protein sequences because of the genetic code, because of the DNA replication, because of the translation, that accuracy is 99.9999999%. And so all of the evolutionary change is coming about from that little 0.00000. Exactly. Isn't that amazing? And you have to have, you can't be 100% because of what RJ just said. Have you mutation. have evolution, you got to have some error. But if you have too much error, what you happens is, Exactly. It blows yeah. up because the proteins stop working. The enzymes don't and work. Any, any resolution to the origin of life in early replicators and early metabolic pre-training wheel, whatever system you want, has to be able to get over that error catastrophe thing right. to where it can be remarkably accurate. And, and that connects up with another area that's always fascinated me is practically every year they find yet another error correction system that goes on in the cell. You go, where did that come from? That there's just this mass of kludgy, complicated things that are coming in and making sure that if there is a mismatch there, it can correct it. And when some of those things misfire, you can get diseases and a whole bunch of other stuff. And for me, even though it's not part of the original abiogenesis toolkit, how those systems developed from an evolutionary point of view, from my mind, are one of the most intriguing unresolved problems in all of evolution. I agree. And, and actually, I mean, in some ways, I like to think of the origin of life as we define it. And, and the NASA definition of life is something that evolves. And so for me, what's really critical is to get to the origin of evolution. Because once you've got living yeah. cells that evolve, you've got modern life. Well, yeah. And the less. interesting thing that we can't tell, but might there have been alternative biologies whose error catastrophe level was not quite so high? Oh, yeah. And that's why they're gone. I'm sure that's true. And that the ancestors of Luca got it in that nice little Goldilocks zone just fine just accurate enough but not too right. accurate and away That's we right. go and pretty soon you got kind of rinks and donald trump yeah <laughs> it's 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 kind of like uh you know the the fine tuning because you yeah. have to have enough accuracy but not 100 percent. so there's a very narrow yeah. range it's actually a kind of a different area because unlike the fine-tuning argument in terms of like gravitational constants and all that kind of stuff that that may be factory presets literally you can't change that in the same way that e is always going to e right. equal right. mc squared but the 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 error catastrophe issue is much squishier because in principle, what you're having are chemical bonds happening. And so anything that theoretically can lead to an error catastrophe resolution system, a replicator that is good fidelity, that, that can avoid breaking up because of the noise of the, bio, of, of the environment that it's operating in, we don't yet know all the parameters of what can operate in those sorts of systems. So it all has to be done uh, uh, from scratch experimentation. And no wonder it's not easy to do. So let me geek out a little more even than we've been doing. Because geek away, I have, kid. I, I have a favorite enzyme, and it's an enzyme that's involved in, um, in the translation. In other words, making proteins. It's, it's an enzyme that links together the right amino acid on one hand and the right transfer RNA on the other. And it's the transfer RNA that binds to the RNA and actually... Yeah starts the protein process. But you have to have exactly the right amino acid binding to the right tRNA because the tRNA has the codon, the amino, which codes for that amino acid. If you get the wrong one on there, everything gets screwed up. 
Now that enzyme not only binds these two completely different kinds of molecules, amino acids and nucleotides are chemically distinct. It binds them both, it sticks them together, it uses energy from an ATP phosphate and makes that reaction occur, but then it does something even more incredible. It takes that RNA, tRNA and amino acid complex and it puts it into another site on the enzyme, which only the correct amino acid will fit. I'm sorry, will not fit. All the wrong amino acids will fit into that site. So if you have by mistake, a smaller amino acid like glycine bound to the wrong tRNA, it goes to the editing site, it fits in very nicely and it's destroyed. <clears throat> This is one enzyme. Does so all it's that. like you have a garbage disposal system being swung along during the square dance. Exactly. <laughs> yeah, that's that's uh, I like that one. <laughs> but, I'm a writer. Now, I come up with these things. Now think about this. This this enzyme was present in Luca. It had to be because we had translation yeah. already. Maybe not exactly the same. Maybe are, a little is it, better with is time. Is something the case? Well, by the way, what what is name? Geek us out with the full name of it. Oh, amino acyl tRNA synthetase. I hate Yeah, yeah. Okay, one of those that I gets hate. an acronym, right? Yeah, it's AARS. Yeah. Uh, is the understanding of it, is it made up of other subcomponents or have or is that still uncertain as to what, what it's a, things made it's up? Not sub, it's not subcomponents, but it's a very large enzyme and there are 20 of them because there's one for what's, each of What's the length of them in, in amino acids? I don't remember. It's around the three hundred. I oh, that's that's a that's a that's a big mother. Yeah, it's it's big. Well, look, it's got four binding yeah. sites. It's got it's got to bind the amino acid. It's got to bind the tRNA. It's got to bind ATP, and it's got to have this editing site. And I don't know what else. I mean, it's yeah. it's a monster enzyme, and it was present at the at Luca. So. Yeah. You know, that's an amazing story. How did we get an enzyme? Where like did that? the thing come from? Could exactly. it have had an, an other context in which it's it's built up by components that it's doing a completely different thing and then gets co-opted? Or did the hand of God come down like uh, Michelangelo, Zot, let there be this large acronym. And, uh, and here's a gift to you, Sal Cordova, be prepared. <laughs> well, I'll tell you, I'll tell you something. Now we're talking, so we're talking about religion. Yeah. I believe the hand of God was involved, but that doesn't mean that I think that God did it, as you know, you like to, we like to say God did it. Because whatever, God, I, I as a Christian, I believe God created everything, but the question for science is how? Yeah. And the, it doesn't matter whether you believe that God created it or somehow it happened spontaneously, but we still want to know how, how did this happen? And, and I mean, I, you know, frankly, I don't want to get into a long religious thing, but uh, the early Christians, the, the, the earliest Christians in the West, in, in Christian Europe, that's why they were studying nature. They wanted to understand how God. Oh, yeah. Nic Nicholas Steno in geology, they would like to know why their backyard right. looks the way it does. That's right. <laughs> so anyway, uh, I, I find, I, you know, this was part of how we ended up with, as you said, error correction systems. That's what yeah. made me think of it. And, you know, there's DNA repair. At one point in my in my uh, professional scientist life, I was actually studying DNA repair. And it, it 
it's it's absolutely amazing how many error correction systems exist in biology. And that also includes gene regulation, which turns out to be an incredibly important uh, issue in modern biology. Yeah. Genes don't, just don't do stuff. If I mean, anything, just... I would, I'd say a huge chunk of what involves evolvability in other areas has to do with the regulation of genes, Absolutely. not the origin of new genes, because Absolutely. the toolkit of us and arthropods isn't all that different, but boy, we certainly look different than a mayfly. Yeah. And, and, you know, Evo Devo evolutionary development yeah. is, it follows from that. So yeah, it's, and, and so all, we, these are these are these are some of the questions that have to be dealt with mm -hmm. when we talk about the origin of life because it's not enough and we know this because people have tried it for decades you can't just take some dna some rna some proteins some enzymes some other chemicals dump them into the into the pot. In, it doesn't yeah. work they don't do yeah. anything You've and got uh, to have these systems my my co-author jackson uh, came up with the term monocausism which is that obsession with the single cause for the thing. And then you have the fist fights between the metabolism first versus yeah. the thing. The, right. Oh, my, no, no, excuse me. There's probably a bunch of, that, that was the case with, the, with that lunar origin thing. Both of the two models for the formation of the moon were wrong. Right. And actually, if you think about it, mono, I love that term, monocausism. Thank Use you, it Jack. freely. Uh, that doesn't work. Anywhere. It Anywhere. doesn't work in history. It doesn't work in politics. The out of Africa versus the multi-regional model in, in human origins, you know, or the, the uh, cursorial versus the uh, arboreal model for flight origin in birds. It turns out that uh, always it, it may lead to some interesting fistfights along the way, but ultimately some new generation has to come along, particularly if they're interdisciplinary, to where right. they're going, this part is pretty good, and this part's pretty good, and then this part here that I've been studying, and there was there a problem here before? It's it's, it's like yeah, let's move on. <laughs> uh, yeah, on I, the chorality cora subject that you detest, uh, I'll, I'll yeah. say this: my reading of the latest literature has to do with uh, the amount of the degree to which space conditions, including ultraviolet light which is normally thought of as a terrible problem. But in, in the chiral thing, the idea that it can skew a little bit here, a little bit here, a little bit here, and then the stuff coming into the pot. Uh, it's certainly a complex layer. Oh, I've got somebody calling me. I'm gonna have to, uh, hold the phone. Carry the show for a second. <laughs> Hello. That's you, Cy. So, uh, yeah. yeah, well. Here, RJ, I'm literally in the middle of a debate and there's no movie tonight. Just mute yourself for yeah. a second. RJ, mute yourself. Praise, just mute RJ for a sec. A lot. If possible, if praise is there. I would do it myself, but I lack the power. <laughs> <laughs> okay, so what, what RJ was just talking about this issue of chirality, which I talked about before the left hand, right hand. You know, there are probably some solutions to that. He was talking about UV light and, and there could be other solutions that have to do with uh, solid state chemistry. Uh, the, and, I, and I think a lot of these very difficult questions have solutions, but what, what one thing we have to keep in mind is, is that the solutions are not easy. They're not, you know, they're not something that we can find quickly. Uh, and that has a lot of implications for some important things like astrobiology. Uh, you know, if, if it turned out that we had 
not necessarily solve the question of abiogenesis, but at least solve the question of how life could start, then we could be very confident that we would definitely find life in lots of places where it could exist. Yeah. Uh, I'm not that confident, frankly, because I see all of these problems with the origin of life. On the other hand, we have to go back to what RJ said at the very beginning, which is that on Earth, it looks like life began almost as soon as it possibly could. I mean, it, it actually- the, the, That's why the geologists want to go to was, Mars in person to find yeah. out, was there ever life on Mars? Right. Venus is like the ultimate hellhole, so I don't think anyone's going to no. be dealing much of that. But was there ever life on Mars? Is, yeah. is and, a, what, and is there really any way of figuring question. out if it's like or unlike? I had a minor error catastrophe of my own because a friend of a friend's refrigerator died in our heat wave here, and so he's arranging to bring his stuff over, and I got space oh, in my refrigerator. Wow. Yeah, 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 it's, what a it's wacky. Yeah, it's wacky. <laughs> Okay, RJ, hold on, because I, I think Sai was making a point there. I just want to make sure that he got the rest of his sentence out. Go ahead, Sai. I don't know. I, I was saying that I, I agree that Mars, it, it's, it's really important because, you know, I, there are these two opposing things. First, we had life start very early on planet Earth, as soon as it could. And heavy bombardment was just starting to end when, you know, already we have evidence that something yeah. was going around. On the other hand, why is it so hard to figure it out? I mean, we know all the chemistry. Uh, we know a lot of the, most of the biochemistry. And I have, I'll tell you my own view, which is philosophical, is that we're missing something basic. And I don't know what that is, if I did. I, yeah, <laughs> we know, if you knew, you wanted to be. Uh, yeah, I exactly. have kind of a Gaia hypothesis approach to it, which is once life gets going, it basically takes over. And it, 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 it self homeostatically modifies stuff in that. And that's part of the reason why I would, it would be a astonishingly interesting thing if it turned out there was actually some sort of hunkered down bacterial form of life on Mars, but I'm not holding my breath. Well, I, I don't know. I mean, that's, it'll be an, it'll be an interesting answer once whatever yeah. the answer and is. And then Europa, another place to look at. Right. in terms of potential oceanic life under its ice caps. That too, I'm not holding my breath, but boy, wouldn't right. it be neat. And then the other issue is life as we know it. It's always that little asterisk, life as we know it. And maybe there can be life other than as we know it, although I'm not holding my breath on silicon-based organisms either. Yeah. <laughs> I, I have to say on this issue, I am very, very conservative. I. I really believe that life requires carbon because of yeah. its chumps, carbon, hydrogen, oxygen, nitrogen, phosphorus, sulfur. And, sulfur. And, and why do I say that? Because carbon is uniquely able to be the basis of so yeah. many different kinds of chemicals. And, and liquid water moderator. Life. Sorry? Liquid water moderator. You can get yeah. ammonia to do it at high pressure, but water is handy. Plus it freezes from the top down, which is nice for critters yeah. in lakes. So you need water and you need carbon. And when I went to a seminar recently from somebody who was talking about all kinds of other life forms based on ice, based on, I don't know, all kinds of things. Yeah. And I listened politely, but frankly, I, I don't see the chemistry working. I mean, yeah. Life, almost by definition, is incredibly complex, chemically speaking. Makes cute science fictions, but not good science. Science fiction is interesting, but you never see a mechanism for all these weird things. Yeah. You know? and, and even silicon has some major Mars problems. is too wet for a silicon-based organism. 
Oh, that's interesting. Didn't yeah, because that. the silicates break down in water. And so, you know, Mars yeah, is, too, right. is, is not arid enough to avoid a silicon-based organism wow. just going. <laughs> so that, yeah, okay, well, that's interesting. Yeah, and that's a problem with silicates. Unlike carbon, where it's promiscuous, but not too promiscuous. So it can make those little multiple bonds like silicon and they can be coupling and uncoupling just enough. Silicon, once it makes those oxygens, it's stuck there and it ain't going back. That's right. So I really do think that, that life is, has to be carbon-based. Uh, and a lot of people will say, well, you're not using your imagination, yeah. which is true. Uh, and, but I do use my imagination when I try to think about what we're missing in the origin of life. I think that there are, there's some, and, and I always go back to physics when I talk about this, because, you know, nobody could figure out how is it possible for the speed of light to be a constant, right? And, and nobody could get it. And how did Einstein get it? He took a whole new kind of math yeah. that no one had ever used before. Well, they use it. But Although... Although William Clifford, Riemann math and all that stuff was perilously close to relativity theory back in the 1860s, but he dropped dead in his 30s. And so uh, we never quite worked it out. So we, might, even, we might be talking about uh, Cliffordian uh, relativity theory instead of Einsteinian had he lived. Was, was he using remain, Riemannian right. math? Yeah, it? yeah. He, he was a, 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 a British well, mathematician and uh, he was really, pre as many were, pressing into that area, but then he died and uh, nothing came of it until wow. that funky little uh, patent clerk there in uh, Germany set his mind yeah. to it. So I think that biology needs something like that. I, I, I think we're in many of these areas of understanding, including, you know, how did, which came first metabolism, you know, how did RNA begin yeah. and how did, how did RNA start some of it will involve interdisciplinary work where they're modeling um, and some of the tools that are probably being used in completely different areas that allow people to visualize four-dimensional processes, things that are happening in space and time, you know, easily dealing with way. We're finding yeah. that in geology where they're working out plate tectonics in a much more sophisticated level because they can model stuff right. that's buried down right. in the deep earth. So, I think exactly so, that modeling is one of the hurdles we have to get past for a biogenesis. Yes, so, and I agree. And I think that one of the big problems that biologists have is not being very conversant with math. And, and that's yeah. a problem. Uh, and I agree with you about the modeling. Some of the, the, the best people in the field are very mathematically sophisticated. Uh, Jack Sostak, for example. Yeah, who yeah. Is it's in some respects a topological problem. And we know how incredibly sensitive some biological processes are as to a particular atom in a particular right, thing right. along a trench. You have to think of it three-dimensionally. You just can't look at the sequence. And I'm sure that some of that is playing a role. We, there's always the thought that some scientist from 2175 comes in the time machine back there and explains to us all about it. And we're going, oh, duh, come here. <laughs> yeah, like what, like what we do. Well, actually maybe, but maybe not. I mean, yeah. Einstein came up with, you know, the fact that time is not constant. That's why the speed of light is constant. And that's kind of tough, but mm -hmm. it's true. I mean, it's demonstrably yeah. true. So math is a, is a beautiful example because of uh, Fermat's last theorem that old pissy aunt Fermat wrote this thing. Oh, this little formula here. And I think it's true. And I have a beautiful proof of it, but it's too big to fit in the margin. F U. 
And mathematicians spent the next 400 years, the biggest minds in math, banging away at Fermat's last theorem and no one could prove it or disprove it. And then some little lower echelon mathematician figures it out in, within my lifetime, our lifetime. And he did it with mathematics that wasn't known to Fermat. So even though Andrew we now Watt. know that Fermat was correct, we still don't know whether he was bullshitting us in that he couldn't possibly have had a proof or not. <laughs> it, it was done by uh, a mathematician named Andrew Wiles and, and yeah. it required computer work. Uh, so there was no way that was Fermat's solution. Yeah, and I think some of that involved some of the, of the complex topology mathematics and yeah. stuff that didn't exist oh, yeah. uh, back where they're looking at a higher level of things. So some... Some boffins, people in your generation, Erica, uh, are going to be interconnecting stuff because all of the most interesting science that's been going on is interdisciplinary, where people could get outside of their comfort zones and have somebody come in, seeing it from a completely different perspective, visualizing things using mathematical tools. I, I, I'm a Platonist in that I think the universe is what mathematics does for a living. So... <laughs> So I, mean, I have. That I, that's I, want, play a role here. I want to bring up something that may be a lot more controversial, but I'm going to leave a little bit of time, like two to three minutes, to do it. So uh, I know you'll Go get with it. excited, but give me a give me a chance. So I found a paper by uh, Dennis Noble, who is one of the great uh, physiologists of our time. He did a lot of work in cardiology mm -hmm. and. He has some very interesting ideas about evolution, about biology in general. And he had a paper published in 2017 called, Was the Match Micro Blind or Was She One-Eyed? It was published in a journal called Biology. And it's a fascinating paper. It's, it's fairly philosophical, but what he's talking about, by the way, I should say Noble is not a Christian. So this does not have anything yeah. to do with, with uh, faith-based stuff. But what he said is, and he's not alone, many people have said this, including, by the way, uh, uh, Daniel Dennett, who we know is not a Christian. <laughs> okay. And but he what, is persnickety. What he's, yeah, and this is a persnickety idea. What they're saying is, we need to bring something back to biology that was excluded from biology during the Teleology. 20th Exactly. We need to bring back teleology. So I read the paper and it's very, very interesting. I had never thought of this, even though I knew the, the biochemistry. What Noble said is there is teleology, not just in you know the way animals work and run around and hunt each other, whatever everybody does. They do things for a purpose, but this teleology within the biochemistry of a cell and his example is the immune system. He talks about the fact that you have this system, I'm not gonna go into the details because that would take an hour, but you have this system where you have uh, the necessity for creating a lot of mutations very quickly that allows for a great deal of diversity in the antibody structures. How do you do that without destroying the main antibody? And the way you do it is you have one small region of that gene, of that protein, which is very variable, which is hypermutable. So that region is mutated tremendously. You get a million different variations, each of which provides a binding site for a different antigen, okay? But the rest of the gene is hypomutable, 
you never get a mutation in it. It's called the constant region. And that allows you to have a very, that allows you to maintain the basic structure of the, of the protein while making many, many changes and many, many iterations and, and, and differences in the antibody binding site, which is what determines where, what antigen it's going to, it's going to attach to. And what he said, which I, and I, of course I knew that you, you learned this in, in graduate school, but what I never thought about is how did that work? How does that work? How does the cell, how, how does the cell know that it should, you know, mutate this part of the gene a lot and that part of the gene, not at all? I, I, I don't actually know how that works. Yeah, but, and, and, you know, and no one yet knows about it. No, no, <laughs> but, but somehow that, that happens. And it happens, it turns out he also has a table with several other enzymes that are hypermutable in one place and not in others. But yeah. You know, it's, it, and he calls this, this is a form of teleology. Now, this is not somebody who's thinking, oh, what do I need now, to I do? Would, I would do the argument that that is a loaded word. And part of it that might be going on here as well, that isn't quite in that same thing is the whole notion of evolvability. That certain systems that occur deep in the switching of things can lead off in a direction that's extraordinarily interesting. And, and th this happens over and over again in evolution. Why amongst all of the Cambrian phyla that come along, some strut their thing on the stage for quite a while, but fizzle out. Whereas the little wormy chordates had features about them that made it more resilient. And so are there higher level structures that you could slap the name teleology onto, or you could put the name evolvability onto where those things have more options available. What, what it looks like in that, that immune system is a system of stable core with a busy little square dance right. going on right. on the top where right. that works at a level where some alternative one, and of course the, the, in the immune system in general, there's an awful lot of layers going on in the immune system. I think almost right. that, that, that it's not like a system, there's umpteen different versions of it in varying organisms, even in the vertebrates. Yeah. Yeah, I, and I think, I think you're, Sorry, oh, sorry. Go ahead. I'm just going to let you guys know you got about five minutes before we're going to move into the Q&A, if that's okay with you guys. Okay. Um, and you've got a billion questions. <laughs> we've got some that I want you guys to take your time. Well, you got some good ones. Uh, last call for questions during this last five minute period. If you guys have a question for one or both of the debaters, shoot on that modern day debate. Okay, keep going. Sorry. <laughs> yeah. Take us outside. No, I, well, I, I think I think we, you know, to call this a debate is sort of a stretch. Uh, we haven't really argued about anything. What we have basically done is is double team, uh, you know, talking about what's obvious, I think, for everyone that we are both very passionate about, and that is the science yeah. of biology and especially how it all started. Uh, and I, I think that, you know, uh, there is so many, if anyone listening is thinking about biology as a career, do it. <laughs> there, there's uh, so many question marks in there that somebody it, will find something of interest to work on. Absolutely, you can't lose. I mean, even if you just want to go into the abiogenesis field, you have your choice of amazing questions to look at. And, uh, you know, maybe you won't cure a disease, but maybe you will. I mean, yeah. you, you never know. So I, I think that this is a, a, a truly wonderful area of science to look into. And I will also say to any, any of my Christian brethren who are watching, uh, this is a fascinating area for theology as well. And we didn't talk about that tonight. This is not the subject. Yeah. 
but it, you know, philosophy and theology have to come in here somewhere because, you know, life is just too big to be ignored by anything. I mean, we, if, everybody if, it, has, if it was good enough it. for the Newtonian era to thrash over theological issues of stuff, of course, the, the living systems are just even more so. Right. Absolutely. Um, you know, I have some astronomy friends who like to throw big numbers at me, like, you know, the huge size of the, of the galaxies, the huge size of the cosmos, how many planets, how many stars. And I say, you're not talking about big numbers. Talk about how many molecules are in a single cell. Yeah. Then you're and talking the, about big numbers. And the num thing that gobsmacks me, and I think maybe one of those variables that play a part in things, is how rapid the process is. Amino acids being plugged right. together in proteins. It's not like clink, 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 like an assembly line. No, it's... Yeah. And, and that speed of which molecules are connecting together in ways, what subconnections are happening in that churning cauldron in possibly pre-LUCA organisms that we can't even model yet to be able to figure out how that's affecting the scene. Right, exactly. So it's, it's a rich area. And I yeah, think with yeah. that, we can go to questions. Yeah. I think they better be good ones, Erica. That's the perfect spot to end it on. Cause I mean, I, I, you know, no one wants to hear from the moderator, but I feel the same way. That's what makes science so awesome is that there's so much room for people to get in there and really sink their teeth into a question. If you feel it's effing fun. Use you. Yeah. There's, there's something for everyone. If you're interested in it, <laughs> you can research it. Yeah. Um, so cool. All right. So our first question is from Raw Nakedness for $10. And uh, I think this is more for both of you to answer if you'd like. Uh, they say, Kojo has published results showing that L-form amino acids and racemic amino acids could be co-crystallized with LASN. They could be preferentially crystallized in depressions of rocks on seashores. So I think that's more of a statement uh, if you guys would like to discuss. Yeah, that, that's, what I, that's what I meant when I said there's a lot of research on how this could have happened, including... You know, and that, that's more of that wet, dry rock. cycle things. Uh, yeah, right. Shosuke Kojo. Um, he's quite, I got uh, uh, a 2015 paper of him. S. isovaline contained in meteorites induces enantoneric excess in the glumatic acid during recrystallization. Uh, that one's in the origins of life and evolution of the biosphere. And yes, there's a damn journal devoted exclusively to this subject. There's a chirality journal. It does nothing but chirality. <laughs> As it should be. Yeah, Shosuke uh, Kojo, S-H-O-S-U-K-E. And uh, an awful lot of that material will be available open access for people. So dive in, kids. The water's fine. All right, from Jeannie Russell for $5. They say, God did it. Where shall we draw the line on naturalism? Hey, they're trying to pick fights here. I say it's on the opposite side of left of Texas. <laughs> Thought it's a great question. Frankly, I think it's a great question. And I think it's something that everyone has to think about depending on their point of view. If, if you're, if you believe in God as the creator, you know, you're going to have a different answer than if you don't. And um, science is not going to, science by itself is not going to get you there. Yeah. So, um, you know, it's not, I, not I even a is, new issue. This is something Isaiah oh, God, had no, to wrangle no. with, you know, uh, the, the, the God of all knows all good and bad, figure it out. So I, yeah, I, I mean, I think it's, it is a good question and, but, but it's, it's this, it doesn't matter what the answer is 
because even if the answer is God created life, which I happen to believe, but that doesn't tell us anything. That just tells yeah. us God created life, which is nice. But how? It's what I said before. What what did God do to create life? Uh, did he come down with a chemistry set and play around with it? I, and I that was one of the big distinctions. I'll, I'll, let me give me a plug for uh, um, the role of Christianity in the origin of science. Unlike the Chinese Taoists, who were doing kind of proto-chemistry and stuff in, in that context, they didn't like the idea that you could take nature apart and look at it and learn sh right. shit. Right. Whereas part of the notion, in part because the way in the Middle Ages they began to depict God as a, a draftsman with compass and straight edge scribing the heavens and all Engineer, of that, that, right. that mental image meant that you could maybe take the pieces apart just like you could take apart a clock or take apart something else and right. look at the things and learn from it. And that was the thing that over many, many centuries and clunky false starts and all the rest eventually led to uh, the uh, scientific and industrial revolution, yeah. um, which is a whole other subject. All right, from experiments in prebiotic chemistry for $10, they say we have observed hundreds of naturalistic causes, but never a supernaturalistic cause for anything. So it's likely that the origin of life has a naturalistic cause too. I think we are pretty close. So, Okay, well, first, let me take the end of that first. We're not pretty close, <laughs> okay? No. I mean, it depends how you define close. We're closer than we were. Uh, James, James Tour, who I admire, is a great chemist. He often says we're no closer than we were, you know, in 1953 with the Miller Well, that's not really real. I mean, we are closer, but we are still hugely far away from getting the answer. And you heard many of the reasons why. Yeah. With respect to supernatural and natural, Obviously, that's true. But in many ways, what I like to say is that depends on how we define natural and supernatural. Yeah. Okay. So science keeps moving. And as, as we were talking about before, it keeps changing. It uses new math. It uses new kinds of, of philosophical ideas. It uses new tools. And as that changes, as it progresses, what used to be maybe considered metaphysical or supernatural, like what we now know the way electrons behave, yeah. become natural. So And yet yeah. when you dig down into that, it turns into this weird quantum world where you have a, a entire, and the same thing with relativity theory. There's a wonderful line from uh, Inherit the Wind that, that, that I'm reminded of at this point where uh, Darrow, who is after all the pro-evolution guy in the story, and he's saying that a child's ability to memorize a multiplication table is one of the great miracles or wonderments of, of the universe. And, and so there's all sorts of things yeah. that, that uh, even down one of the tests that uh, Alan Alda's a uh, bunch where he's trying to get scientists to learn better to communicate uh, with people in learning theater and all of that. One of the first problems they put, they would ask children to ask questions that they, to get an answer to it. And one of the very first ones off the block was why do fire flame looks the way it does. And it turns out that's really a complex problem. Yeah. And the moment they had to start thinking through what that meant. Another one that I can, I love to use is that if we're talking about the origin of life, you know something, we don't know what causes it exactly lightning in a thundercloud it's still not resolved how positive and negative charges can segregate to make a zot on frying you on the golf course when you put your uh, uh, putter up too high. And so, um, and yet it's still electrical. 
So why should we expect the origin of life to be any more in there? But yeah, please, everybody out there that's a non-believer, don't go off to say, hey, we've resolved the origin of life. No, you're only going to get beaten right. in the ass on that one. Right. <laughs> All right. Next question for $5 from Lockbeard. Einstein stole most of his ideas from Henry Poincar. Was wrong anyways. At least he's he married his cousin, right? Stop worshiping that lying fool. Um, so take that how you will. No yeah, comment. Yeah. Yeah. Point <laughs> All right. care. All right. Next up, Amy. And the answer Newman, is no, dollars. he didn't. <laughs> Amy Newman for five dollars after show at my channel. Great job, modding Erica. Thank you. Don't mind if I do. It was easy with these guys. And question for Dr. Gart. Oh, before I move on, uh, there's also going to be an after show at Sal's channel, Evidence and Reasons. So two after shows, Amy Newman, Evidence and Reasons. Please go support these two. You know, they support Modern Day Debate and we love them both. So question for Dr. Gart from Amy. What would it take for you to believe in a naturalistic origin of abiogenesis? I do believe in a naturalistic yeah. origin for abiogenesis. Um, I, you know, <laughs> I've already I published one paper in peer-reviewed scientific literature on uh, the whole issue of um, fidelity and continuity in replication. Yeah. Uh, it's it's a modeling theoretical paper. It's in a theoretical journal. I'm now working, as I think I mentioned before, with a couple of guys who both both atheists on uh, looking at uh, the very, very earliest stages of genetic code, codon evolution. So I'm looking keep, at Keep that. shooting me the papers on those as they come up. I, I will. If I don't I'll, already I'll, have them in my thing. Yeah. Uh, so I'll put them on. I'll, I'll put a link on, on the description when we're done. Let me shock everybody. I bet Cy and I and Erica all believe in a naturalistic origin for the Rocky Mountains, too. Mm. Yep. <laughs> but let me let me just say that, <clears throat> you know, I also believe in. Yeah, I believe in a natural origin for the world. Uh and I believe in a natural origin for everything because that's what we study with science and I'm a scientist. Yeah. But I also am a Christian and I believe that God is behind this. I don't know how. And if, that's not something that I- that, I can let predict. Yeah, let, let, let me just finish. That's not something that I think I can find out scientifically because science doesn't deal, by definition, science deals with nature. It doesn't deal with anything that's yeah. outside of nature. So we can't address those issues scientifically. These are matters of faith and they have a whole different uh, way of looking at things. So it, do it, it doesn't take anything. I'm already there. I'm already saying yeah. that, you know, the origin of life is naturalistic. That does not rule out, you know, my faith in God in any way. I was just going to say that if, if somehow or other uh, some clever scientists crack the problem and figure out how life originated uh, in that mechanism and demonstrate in the lab, religious people can easily say, look how clever God was to have designed a universe which, which matter self-organizes that way. Yeah, I mean, there's, you know, there's one thing that, I mean, I, I'm very active on Twitter and I, I often get into arguments with atheists. And one, one, of the, one of the arguments that I don't enjoy is every question we've ever had has always been answered naturalistically and never by supernatural. But you know, that's, and they talk about Thor and lightning. I hate to tell it to you, but you know, Thor and lightning is hundreds of years old. There are people who say, oh no, it wasn't natural. God came down and did this. I don't know anyone who said that. I mean, they may say, they may say that it happened 6,000 years ago if they're younger creationists, 
But there, nobody's talking about that. We, yeah. I mean, and look at, look go at Lemaitre being you know, at the, at the, the root of <laughs> Lemaitre at the root of uh, Big Bang cosmology. You know, people there who had go. a religious faith, the, the, the Jesuits that started out, you know, as the shock troops of the Reformation, a counter-Reformation, you know, turned into all these astronomy geeks there at the Vatican Observatory. Yeah. Uh, just yesterday, uh, the Unbelievable Show, which is a great uh, British show, had two physicists on to talk about Believe it or not, origin of life. <laughs> Everybody's getting into it, right? So yeah, one was jump on the bandwagon. One was Jeremy England, who's a who is an Orthodox rabbi, yeah. and one was um, Paul Davies, who is not religious, but he says he's like Einstein. He believes in some kind of a quantum uh, uh, quantum uncertainty and, and quantum consciousness, yeah, things like that. Some yeah. kind of force or something. So yeah. I mean spirituality is and, and neither of them use that in their discussions which were all about physics and biology they came up as a question and they both explained how they felt but it, you know <laughs> i don't know how to explain this any better than than i can when you're doing science you're doing science and we know how to do science it, yeah. the rules are very clear and, and the methods are very clear and you don't violate that. You stick with that and you learn what you can learn. And as a Christian, I firmly believe that what we, why we worship God is not because of what we don't know, but because of what we do know. And I, and I put that in my book and I, I talk about that all the time. Yeah, and I can, and I can then put on the field uh, Julian Huxley's, I think it was Julian Huxley, who, uh, no, no, uh, J.B.S. Haldane. Uh, the old line that says, uh, right. not only is the universe, he used the word queerer than we can imagine, it may be queerer than we can imagine. And so even in a universe that right. may or may not have gods in it and has naturalistic processes, there are levels of woe that right. are very probably built into the structure of the universe. Because even within my own lifetime, we've seen the process of going from billiard ball Eddington style atoms to particles, subatomical particles, to quarks, to possibly vibrating strings, to maybe uh, turtles all the way down. <laughs> Who knows what it's going to be? And that's just one little discipline. So right. there's, there needs to be a degree of humility and amazement. The fact that the universe is a really weird, amazing place that we can understand pieces of by the science thing. And let's just go with that, shall we? Got it. Good. Yeah, I, we're on the same page there. From yeah. Joseph Clark for $5. And just to note, we have about 10 minutes, maybe 15, given we had that little blip in the middle before we've been at about two hours. Um, so so what I think we'll do is, it, depending on how you guys feel, we'll do this is our last super chat, and then we'll go mm -hmm. one or two of the- Time flies, even with the interruptions. Uh, or if you'd like, we can end directly at the hour. It's completely up to you guys, because we here at Modern Day Debate respect the time of the debaters. Um, discussers today, I would say. Uh, yeah. But first, we'll, we'll hit uh, Joseph Clark's super chat. They ask, doesn't science presuppose logic, a discipline that expands the scope of reason to embrace universal and formal axioms by which man can discover God? I, I think that's very topical. <laughs> I hate to cut tell, both ways. I hate to say this, and I'm interested in what RJ thinks, but Logic is, I love logic. I studied symbolic logic in college. It's great. You know where it doesn't work at all? Biology. It doesn't. Biology like is even not a logical logic. science. What's that? 
Uh, it doesn't even work in logic. And the bugbear here <laughs> is uh, is uh, Ernst Gödel, uh, or Kurt Gödel, um, undecidability propositions. Hold on to your seats, kids. Fasten your seatbelt down. Write this one down. All logical systems contain within them undecidable propositions. Right. Live with it. Yeah. And when you look at when you look at biology, one of the one of the logical principles that is always disobeyed is Occam's razor. Hmm. So, you know, I there are so many examples, but the one I use is nucleotide synthesis. You have you have these pathways of synthesis which are totally redundant. There are like three or four different ways to activate or inhibit a particular metabolic pathway. You don't need that. It's extra complications, but that's what biology is full of. Yeah, and so that extra complication is giving us a clue as to what was going on. You have to have a system that ends up with that degree of multiple interactive redundancy. That is itself a clue. Yeah, it is. And, and sometimes that redundancy, we find out, oh, that's why, but sometimes we don't. And yeah. I think one of the one of the points is that biology works, and in order to work, you gotta have backup systems. I mean, this is true mm -hmm. in engineering. Have you have you read? Uh, have either of you read uh, Douglas Hofstadter's old book, Gödel and yes. Bach? Yes. Yeah. Have you Have you, Erica? Um, I'm answering super chats. One second, RJ. You oh. guys keep talking. Sorry. Yeah. Uh, um, uh, it it was a, one of the most thought provoking, annoyingly yeah. thought provoking works that I've ever read in my life. And even though it was written like 40 years ago, still remains thought provoking. Even though our understanding of biology and things have advanced beyond it, the the basic percepts that are in there, you learn about Bach and Gödel and Max Escher, the, the guy with the paintings where people are walking up around the ceilings, all about the, the role of nonlinearity in systems right. and unpredictability right. and all that. And so it's a gigantic monster of a book. But right. if you ever want to have a thing and you can you literally read it in any order you want, that, that was part of that recursivity <laughs> element of it, that it's one of those things that will remind you of how immensely complicated systems are. And you'll be thinking along, is DNA the way it is is because it's the only system that will work? If you can have a brain composed of little chemical signals where there is no brainy thing in there that's you, and yet there you are, can an ant colony be self-aware because it has little ants doing things that are the counterpart of calcium molecules going across? How do we draw the line on all this stuff? It's an immensely thought-provoking book and it's a monster to read, but everybody should. What's the name of it again, Archie? Uh, uh, Gödel uh, Escher Bach, okay. The Eternal I'm Golden Braid by Douglas Hofstetter in 1980-something. Yeah. I think it may even be available, downloadable and all of that. It's one of those, it's the Gone with the Wind and uh, uh, the, the War and Peace of philosophical, biological, speculative thinking. It's a, it's a whiz-bang of a book. It's not, yeah, that sounds like a multiple sit-down kind of book. We yeah, have yeah. Um, another super chat from Ron Nakedness. We actually have two more super chats, if that's okay with you guys. Uh, for $5, mm -hmm. they asked, this one specifically for Cy, does Cygar believe, I think you kind of answered this, but they want to know, I guess, more specifically, does Cygar believe that God created Luca? Ooh. Well, I, I, I think my, it's the same answer uh, that I gave before. Uh, I, I don't know. I mean, uh, no. if, if God did create Luca, then he did it in a way that we want to know how. <laughs> okay. Exactly. Uh, there's there. It's true that there is a big gap there, and this. And but again, I don't go with God of the gaps. So if there is a big gap, we need to know 
is there a mechanism that we don't know about that yeah i mean uh, uh rj mentioned um you know the the origin of mitochondria and and uh you know endosymbiosis how did that happen i mean that that re that represented a a, a big discontinuity in the evolution of life. I and mean, all of a sudden, you know, we had this, uh, this new organelle. Get the whole is bigger than the sum of its parts. Yeah. So, I mean, I, you know, I, I would rather keep the question scientific for this discussion. Uh, I mean, I, the answer to the question is simply yes. But again, I have to go back to what I answered about 10 minutes ago or five minutes ago, uh, what that means. And I, I'm not going to repeat it now. But uh, yeah, the essence of the scientific mind, and for that matter, people who like to read mysteries and all that, is that you want to know how the magic trick's done. There you go. Thank you. Yep. I like right, that. From Bubblegum Gun for $5. Uh, I, I'm guessing this is for both of you, but um, whoever wants to answer it, by all means, they say, uh, when God becomes accepted as truth, how do you think that will change our social interactions? How will people change if they fear demons or hell? Gee, haven't we already reached that stage? I don't know. <laughs> <laughs> hey, man, the question is for you guys, not me. <laughs> yeah, yeah. The, the great Golga Frinchum. Uh, from uh, there, you know, the, 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 the gargle seizure or something from uh, Hitchhiker's Guide to the Galaxy. Um, as a secularist, I look at the point is that um, there, there has never been a point in human history where everybody believed the same thing. And everybody's religion has been a thing that has evolved over time and people can fold the history of things in. There's benchmarks in there just as much as there is on Luca. And so, um, it it could be argued that a religion that cannot adapt to the new understanding is probably going to bore the shit out of everybody and is going to disappear, right. which is why there aren't too many Athena believers today. Right. Yeah. Okay, guys. Um, and Sai, unless you want to add something, that's all of our super yep. chats. And we're about two minutes to the end. Um, we have a lot of other questions that weren't super chats, but there were a lot of them. And I'm not 100% sure of the order that they came in. So mm -hmm. I'm kind of hesitant to get into that. Uh, and we've been going for about two hours as well. Well, if there are any science questions, that yeah, not if you if you can call that out, I'm I'm here for yeah. the duration, and if Sai is, we're we're here until they kick us out yeah. of the door. But let's, okay, let's let skip look. the theological ones because we've already yeah. answered that. And okay, here here's here's one for you, RJ. We'll we'll go through them then. We'll go through the ones we got because I think there are quite a few science ones in here, which is great news for you guys. Uh, from standing for truth, uh, for RJ, he asks. Can you show us a technical paper of a non-functional ERV going from non-functional to something extremely functional in determining cell types, embryo uh, logical development, cell stress responses, and immune system balance? Thanks. Gee, right off the bat, out of memory, no, but that is a trope that you've been doing in lots and lots and lots of debates with people over the times, and I'm uh, we could go into that. Why would you expect that that should happen? That would be the thing we're expecting your monograph on standing. Okay, from Dessel Drace, uh, this one's for size, so we'll, we're going back and forth. Um, Dessel asks, you mentioned polymerization and the phylogenetics and formation of membranes. Any thoughts to share on Nick Lane's model in the vital question and power sex suicide? Mm. Uh, okay. Size um, hmm. size. I, I, I don't know how much I can answer that. Nick, Nick Lane's book, I read uh, and I found it interesting, but frankly, uh, I, I, I didn't find it 
really germane to some of the biochemical issues that I'm interested in. I mean, he is a, he, I think he's a biochemist. I don't remember now, but uh, I wasn't, I mean, it mostly deals with the whole issue of energy conversion. Now, the question though was about polymerization. Yeah, phylogenetics and formation of membranes. Uh, and then the other, oh, okay. you okay. about Nick, your thoughts on Nick Lane's specific model as well. Yeah, so, so the, the phylogenetics of, of membrane structure really is interesting because it, I, and I don't remember what Lane says about that, so I can't answer it. But what's interesting is, is that um, it diverged radically after LUCA when you look at archaea and you look at bacteria. Uh, and so we don't know what the original membrane structure was, or is it a combination of these two? It's different phospholipids were being used in these two different uh, uh, kingdoms or whatever. Um, so uh, the phospholipid, uh, what we're used to is, is what we have in bacteria and in, and in eukaryotes, but the archaea have a totally different uh, phylogenetics for membranes. And I, it's, uh, I don't remember now what the chemistry is, but it's a different yeah. kind of phospholipid chemistry. Uh, Nick Lane and William Martin did a 2012 paper in uh, the December 21st issue, uh, 2012 of Cell on the origin of membrane bioenergetics. So that probably is uh, the most recent thing I've seen in right. terms of them stating what the ballpark issues and stuff are. Yeah, that's coming back. So in other words, so again, a little bit to, to explain this whole thing a little more, Biological energetics depends on membranes. It depends on the transfer of protons and sometimes electrons across membranes. Uh, it, it's a it's a, uh, a a gradient system. So yeah. once you have um, once you have these protons crossing a membrane, eventually that can lead to the turning of a molecular machine, which puts an, another phosphate onto an adenosine diphosphate, making ATP. And once you've made ATP, you then have the energy currency for the rest of the cell. Everything else in the cell that requires energy uses ATP. And so that's chemical energy, which is created by this mechanical energy of protons going through a membrane, which is created by this osmotic uh, force so it's an incredibly um, uh, complex and, and just beautiful system of several kinds of energy conversion. I'm sorry that I don't remember what Lane says about it. Uh, it's been uh, a couple of years since I read the book. Yeah, and he's got a, a wire cells powered by protein gradients that he did for nature education in 2010. So a lot of it is like a decade old. So yeah. it's kind of like well, you know, yeah, Lane, like is, Lane is like, like in the, in the on off ramp of the hot lane of, right. of, of current research. Yep, I am totally with you with both of you guys. Our next question, uh, actually, I, you guys are, you guys made the right call on this one because there are a bunch of really good science questions that are, are fairly equally yeah. divided between the two of you. It's fun. Um, and, and, I, and I can tell you guys are enjoying this and I'm, I'm loving it too. I'm just trying to manage our, our questions as well uh, and the chat. From uh, Church of, or sorry, from Creo Debunk, they're first. 
Um, and this is to both of you, or I guess to all. I don't know if they're including me. I'm going to assume that no. Hey, they say, why not? Hey, man, you know what? I'm, I'm staying removed today. But they, as much as I would love to, I, there are some subjects that I just can't, you know, keep my mouth shut about, of course. But this is all you guys. Uh, they say, have you, the two of you, heard about the recent experiment where some blobs show selection of pure chemical reactions? Some blobs. I'm, I'm not sure what that's referring to maybe just a, a yeah yeah that that would that would that be english or metric blobs uh yeah i'm not not entirely sure i i know about some of the things in terms of um uh, membrane formations and i think some of that comes up with the name that suddenly escapes me the guy that's doing the research up in iceland and and all of that where uh, oh yeah yeah and uh, uh but uh, the, the the thing is is that it's all part of the stuff of trying to do experiments real time with very limited amount. That, that's one of the, the pitfalls of science research is that you've got to trim it down to a manageable level where you can look at your variable and, and measure the specific variable. Whereas complicated things like life have a bunch of variables all happening at once. But if you, if you, you can't do an experiment where you're learning anything, where you've got all that happening at once because you don't know what's happening. All you can look at is the output. So yeah, I'm not exactly familiar with the blob literature on that. I'd have to see the technical paper on it. <laughs> I I would actually like to see the technical literature too because I'm always tickled when you when you get into the. I, I've seen the movie of it though, and that was with uh, uh, Steve McQueen. Yeah, yeah, yeah. I, well, I read the Goosebumps books, which I'm sure covered very similar topics. But I I do love when the when the literature delves into uh, such Blob. as blobs. <laughs> <laughs> All right, from Church of Entropy to both of you, could bound photon fields be responsible for the DNA manufacturing and enzymes lowering the ignition energy of digestive processes? E e like e oh, I think that's more in your field side than mine. Yeah, but say it again. I didn't get the first part. I'm sorry. Uh, say, no, no, no problem. Uh, to both, could bound photon fields be responsible for the DNA manufacturing and the enzymes, enzymes in quotations, lowering the ignition energy of digestive processes, e.g. consciousness is light. Boy, that's a, that's a wide range. <laughs> I, yeah, I, I, I'm not, I don't understand. I'm that getting that. whiplash on that question. I, <laughs> could what, what was it? I, what, what Digestion was it? and consciousness, that's a broad things. Yeah, yeah something about- something, What was the something that could- uh, Yeah, it's- well, a, Protein okay. bound- um, I, I don't know, is that the electron configuration of, of the- they, uh, they say bound proton fields. So could bound- Bound proton fields. Sure or sorry, I'm sorry, yeah. photon fields. I'm an idiot. Photon fields, photon bound. Fields. Photon fields be responsible for DNA manufacturing yeah. and the enzymes lowering the ignition energy of digestive processes, i.e. consciousness is light. Uh, Church of Entropy, if you're in the side chat and you feel like uh, clarifying I, that, I, I, yeah, can you translate that into English for us? <laughs> I, I just don't know. Yeah, I, 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 yeah I, I, that it sounds like a bunch of train wreck of, of concepts where they're not actually connected. My uh, my my first thought was the um, like with consciousness and the digestive. I know the digestive system, gastrointestinal systems have a ton of neurons involved in, in how they work but i don't i don't think i think i'm way off i think that's i think this is let, let there be photons and we move on <laughs> yeah yeah i guess so okay let me make sure we've got everything 
because I think that was our last question. I think we've hit, we've hit everything that I've got here on the side. We've resolved Um, every, every possible thing. It's done. Yeah, we fixed it. Guys, we solved day biogenesis. We solved (laughs) the answer. (laughs) Well, the answer is 42. Yeah, there you go. That's the answer. answer 42. I'm double checking the side chat to just make sure that if anybody, if perhaps we missed anything, um, Church of Entry says, I'll think on it and I'll explain it on Amy Newman's channel if, if they can get on. So if you want more information, you, you could go to Amy's after show. Beware um, what you ask for. Um, and uh, before we kind of wrap up, you know, I, I want to reiterate for Modern Data Bay on behalf of James that this is, of course, a neutral platform and we're very happy to have anybody on. Um, and, and that's what makes the channel so cool is that, you know, you, you can discuss a, a lot of different, a lot of different things. That's why we can have this yeah. conversation. And maybe more discussions instead of debates. Hmm? It, it, now, listen, you're appealing to my sensibilities because I, I love discussions as well. I'm not a huge fan of the, of the blood sports, but yeah. that's just me. Uh, <laughs> a huge thank you on behalf of myself and uh, Modern Day Debate, James, uh, to RJ and Sai for coming on and having this chat. I enjoyed the heck out of it. I'm going to have to rewatch it because a couple of times I was trying to like collect all super chats with praise and go yeah. them and organize them and, and, you know, what have you. Um, and uh, the last thing, last last order of business is that again, if you guys are interested in talking about this more, uh, both the two of you who I know would be invited and anybody in the side chat uh, watching this right now, there are indeed two different after shows going on. One is on Amy Newman's channel and the other is on Evidence and Reasons channel. That's Sal and that's just gonna be Amy Newman the channel and then Evidence and Reasons the channel. Uh, and I'm sure they'll both be having some really sweet conversations. Yeah. So. Um, with that, do you guys have anything else you'd like to say b- before we kind of close off here? Well, 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 size thinking, I'll just say that that I, I, I think we achieved the goal that we set out to do. We wanted to convey the fact, boy, there is so much interesting work that's going on in this field and related to so many connective elements. And I think we touched on an awful lot of it there that, that it gets obscured in the debate fistfight mode Instead, right. we wanted to talk about all the science stuff. And I think we, we got what we wanted to out of the way. Yeah, and I think knowing the science, or at least some of it, we just touched a small amount, but knowing the science is critical for the further philosophical or theological discussions. Because if you don't get the science right, yeah. you know, you're, you're not going to go anywhere. So I think I, think I agree, RJ, that we, we were able to at least communicate, hmm. I hope, uh, not just the science, but the, the passion that's that's involved in in uh, yeah, in and doing and, and that along the way, hopefully, some people in the audience will have dun 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 learn some shit. Hey, I think it. I think the uh, the passion here was precious. Everyone in the side chat was talking about the subject and talking about how cool it was that this was uh, was such an engaging and cordial discussion. So I uh, think that you guys did a yeah. superb job, um, kind of conveying this information to you know even someone like me, a layman, to this kind of to this subject. I I felt like when I was able to, I could follow along quite well. Um, we live well, in such an amazing time on the accessibility of information that it is unconscionable for that to be left on the sideline in these kind of discussions. Mm, I, I, I concur, RJ. Guys, thank you so much for being here. And uh, as Jim would say, were he here, keep sifting out the reasonable from the unreasonable. And uh, let's hit that end, ed, ed, exit, outro, outro music. 
When you need mealtime inspiration, it's worth shopping Kroger, where you'll find over 30,000 mouth-watering choices that excite your inner foodie. And no matter what tasty choice you make, you'll enjoy our everyday low prices, plus extra ways to save, like digital coupons worth over $600 each week. You can also save up to $1 off per gallon at the pump with fuel points. More savings and more inspiring flavors make shopping Kroger worth it every time. Kroger, fresh for everyone. Fuel restrictions apply. Save big on Brunch for Mom, all in the Kroger app. Get 16-ounce packs of flavorful Angus 90% Lean Ground Sirloin for $4.99 each with a digital coupon. Then buy two, get two free on 12 packs of delicious Coca-Cola, Pepsi, or 7-Up, all with your card. Shop these deals at your local Kroger today. Or tap the screen now to download the Kroger app to save big today. Kroger, fresh for everyone. Prices and product availability subject to change. Restrictions apply. See site for details.